Welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast focused on tech innovation in finance, fintech. I'm Lloyd Wired and I'm a headhunter. I'm privileged to spend my days meeting with some of the influencers, leaders and founders in technology and finance, from unicorn companies to financial disruptors. This podcast, we're going to be hearing from these individuals and really try to understand how they got into fintech, what they're doing, what their company is all about, and perhaps some of the trends that they're looking at in the market. Ed, welcome onto the show, Searching for Mona. Hello. Um, fuller introduction, uh, Ed Vasey, former UK tech and culture minister. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Just before we kind of do a, a bio and a, and a career walkthrough, um, we've, got, we've got another guest on the show here. You can see your, your dog running around, Ed. Um, well, Let's see if the dog uh, wants to join us. It's too distracted at the moment. <laughs> she might come back in. We'll, we'll get her to do a guest appearance at some stage. <laughs> She's a very cute dog. What's she called? She's called Pepper. Cool. And um, I can see, obviously, as uh, along with everybody else right now in the UK, um, you, you're in your residence. Um, how how uh, how's that going? How how's um, being isolated? Have you found found it okay? Yeah, we're very lucky because we're uh, in Oxfordshire, so we're in a small village outside Wantage. Uh, I used to represent this constituency before I left Parliament in uh, December last year. And uh, so we've got, we're surrounded by green fields so we can go for walks. I started running and working out uh, when I can. So uh, weirdly, uh, although it's a very tough time, obviously, for everyone, uh, there are some small silver linings in the sense that you are, uh, you know, free from the distractions of your daily existence and you can focus on uh, staying healthy. Yeah, that's right. That's de definitely um, a lot of people that I'm talking to, um, candidates, clients, um, peers, um, who have a positive attitude throughout it. Obviously, it's um, a terrible crisis in many ways. It seems that they are getting a load of things they didn't have in check into check. And one of those is, is exercise. I'm yet to join that club. I've uh, <laughs> managed to... Um, to uh to to go for a run or, or do stuff inside but that's my next next challenge i've just been trying to move my business that's as a headhunting firm uh all about meeting people um and going and networking to efficiently working remotely so that's been yeah that's been a real upheaval for us but i feel like after a few weeks we're we're there and everyone's now enjoying their remote work to such a degree that i might struggle to get them back to a four or five day a week uh, role in the office. But, um, yeah, go. I don't agree with that. I think that, uh, I think people who think that, um, I mean, who knows when this crisis will end, but I don't think that we will, I don't think it will fundamentally change things. I think that uh, we will rush back to social contact when this is over and very quickly slip into our old ways, whether they were bad or good old ways, I don't know. Uh, there's a romantic part of me like you that thinks I could do a day at home on Zoom meetings, but actually face-to-face uh, -face contact. There's the odd meeting I could possibly do on Zoom these days. Sometimes I find myself traveling into town for one or two meetings. I might be more robust and say, now I'm going to do those on the phone or on Zoom. Uh, but generally speaking, I think we'll go back to the old ways. Here's the dog. That door opening is the dog returning. And here um, she is. So, see, I think, you're, I, think, I think in some part you're right. I think that, you know, industry has changed. A lot of the people receiving the large amount of investment or, or running business now are from a technical background. Um, yeah. And so I think that there, certainly over the last several years, um, has been a disparate change in how people perceive a, a culture as productive. And so I think a lot of technology businesses right now are all over the press as well. We had everything set up like this. You know, we're using Slack to communicate as teams and collaborate across different territories. 
we're using Zoom to have our meetings. You know, we're never all in person having meetings. Um, and there's almost an appetite to always make things more efficient, which is the whole artificial intelligence movement. But um, certainly from what I see, like, it never surprises me how much progress is made with those type of innovative efficiencies, but then how much actually when you look at the business, there's just as many people in those companies and how much relationships are still so important to be forged in person and building rapport. So I think you're right. I think we'll carry on having uh, a combination, but I, I, I suspect that remote work and yeah. uh, Zoom... I just want to make sure the dog is in uh, shot here. So um, the dog is going to sleep here, and it reminds me, weirdly, uh, one of the things I've done while I've... Uh, being WFH is a yoga course where the yoga teacher, it's a recorded thing, but she has her enormous uh, dog in the background, which is, uh, I find quite therapeutic. So I'm hoping the dog will stay for our um, <laughs> rest of our podcast. But I think what you're saying is very interesting. I don't want to distract from the main event, which is that um, to a certain extent, it depends on what kind of business you are. So when I was an MP, for example, I had a team of two or three people but I never saw them physically. I, we would meet up maybe once a week to, to chat, just almost for form's sake. But, you know, the lady who handled my constituency casework, it all came in by email. She did it at home in, in Wantage. Uh, the guy who uh, handled my campaigns was in London, in Westminster, but he uh, didn't physically need to see me. We could chat about stuff on the phone. So uh, there's certainly, you know, what I think is interesting about this terrible crisis we're going through. So, you know, again, we're, we're always looking at potentially silver linings is um, how quickly innovation happens when it has to happen. So, yeah. for example, there's a lot of bureaucratic inertia about things like telemedicine, you know, GPs consulting with their patients uh, over video link. Uh, well, when you have to do that because you don't want to have face-to-face -face contact, suddenly you see in a very intense period uh, the opportunity that exists to really make that interaction 10 times more efficient than it is for, say, a relatively vulnerable patient to schlep over to a doctor's surgery and wait for an hour for an appointment. So some of that change, I think, will filter through and be permanent. And I think one of the things I've been thinking about writing about is about the coronavirus won't lead to a return of big government. People are saying, well, you know, the government is nationalizing everything, controlling everything. But I will, it could herald a return, or not a return, uh, but a more effective government, a government that looks at problems rather like a sort of hackathon, if you like, and says, you know, okay, we, we could, say, reduce the number of cancer deaths by 50% in the next five years, but we have to relentlessly focus obviously not at the scale we focused on coronavirus, but we can really step it up again. I was thinking about the early days when people compared the coronavirus to flu. It's clearly obviously a million times worse than flu, but one of the things that makes flu bad and people die from it is that we don't have a national vaccination program or a public health awareness program. So maybe that will change. Maybe there'll be a much more effective measures to reduce deaths from regular flu so all of that yeah. could change there could be a lot of change on the way yeah and i uh, i was reading um a professor richard suskind um who, who does a lot of work on um predicting trends in the future of um commerce and and he's been campaigning about um court attendance being virtual now um, and i think he's been doing that for a while um and predicting it that is possibly another yeah. thing that we'll see now because of this crisis. Um, classic, classic example. Yeah. Where you can see the officials in the Department of Justice saying, no, you know, it's part of our tradition of justice. The defendant should be present in the courtroom to see justice being done. Well, you know, it costs a lot of money to move a defendant from prison to court. Uh, it's, it creates vulnerabilities if the, uh, if the defendant is particularly uh, risky or at risk. Uh, all of that could change. Um, uh, you could have a much more holistic approach to criminal justice if you embraced uh, technology. So that's a very good example of how things could change. 
yeah. because things have had to change. So I, I want to get into um, understanding some of the, the responsibilities, um, you know, the things that would have just been wonderful to be able to make strategy on uh, and some of the stresses uh, when you're in the seat that you're in, in Parliament. Um, so um, one of the things that, you know, I see a great impact uh, in the tech sector that, that obviously I work within um, is the Innovation UK um, scheme where uh, companies uh, can get large government grants if they're truly seen as, um, you know, colliding creativity and commerce where it um, provides a, an additive result to, to, to the UK. Um, so you, you're involved in um, Tech UK um, right from the beginning, I believe. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends what you're, which one you're talking about. So there's Innovate UK, which uh, uh, gives government grants to mainly focused on kind of science companies. Yeah. So as an example, I'll give you an example in my old constituency, which I used to represent, where I'm speaking from now, Wantage. It has um, a scientific campus called, the science campus called Harwell, which has a lot of space companies. Uh, it may surprise some people to learn there's a thriving space startup sector in the UK. Uh, there's a company called Open Cosmos, building small satellites. Uh, full of uh, thrilling, uh, being thrilled at um, how Innovate UK has helped them get started with uh, grants for to, to get them off the ground. So, uh, and anecdotally, I spent a, a great deal of time, both as an MP and a minister, hearing really fantastic feedback from Innovate UK. It's a kind of, people keep talking about Britain having its own DARPA, the Defence Research arm in the US, it's sort of a, a, civi a civilian and much smaller version of our DARPA. It just gives very, very uh, targeted grant assistance to scientific startups that need kind of significant capital of half a million to a million to really get going. And it seems, and I, this is not based on any objective research, but anecdotally, it seems to have had a tremendous success because I, met, I kept meeting companies time after time, who said they owed their start in life to Innovate UK. Then you've got Tech Nation, which was the trade body that the government set up as Tech City to represent the tech sector. Interestingly, I just applied to be the chairman of Tech Nation, and they sent me an email saying uh, that I shouldn't, uh, they didn't think I was worthy of an interview. So <laughs> that was a bit of a blow, having helped create uh, Tech Nation uh, or Tech City as it was in 2010. Did, did they give you any feedback as to why uh, they were rejecting your application, Ed? No, I asked for feedback, but they spelled my name wrong as well, so I'm obviously well <laughs> well past my sell-by date. But um, they were set up to, uh, to uh, and I think have done so very successfully, to promote the startup, the UK startup economy. Yeah. And uh, to be a sort of front door for anyone who was interested in that. So if you're, if you're a foreign investor or whatever and you wanted to learn about the UK's startup economy, you would go to Tech Nation. They've done a very good job in highlighting where the clusters are and so on. And also uh, lobbying government to, for changes that would help the startup community, particularly on things like immigration and specialist visas to get in founders and so on. So I think uh, they've been a great success story as well. I would have made them even more successful I'd become the chairman, but clearly yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. I, I mean, so, so your tenure in that position was when we really saw, you know, London's tech scene become fantastic, uh, and and it's it's obviously one of the the crown and the jewels still, along with finance, right? It's technology and yeah. finance in the city. Yeah. Um, so I don't understand why you you know you <laughs> you weren't taken seriously, but um, but there but there we are, and um, what. What you've applied to do that? Is there something that you're really excited about doing right now, or that you're looking at on that type of um, scale in that area? Uh, well, I mean, I left Parliament weirdly in order to do more politics. It's a famous phrase that Tony Benn 
used. But I really enjoyed being a minister. I think, you know, even the most junior minister, you know, people can deride uh, ministerial life. And it's true that to a certain extent, the big decisions are effectively made by the prime minister and the chancellor and other ministers are to a certain extent uh, along for the ride. But you can make a big, big difference as a minister. And I loved being a minister. I looked after the arts, culture. I lobbied for the kind of tax breaks that have seen the film and video games industries thrive in the UK. And I really got uh, excited by the UK's tech sector because I found it very creative and very innovative and exciting. And it's not just in London as well. It was, it was all over the country. So that was fantastic. And uh, I left Parliament because I wanted to, uh, I thought I'm not going to become a minister again. You know, I've, I've been a minister for six years. I've been fired. It's highly unlikely I'll be brought back into ministerial life. And I'd like to, but I'd still like to do stuff in the sort of public policy arena. And that can mean working with private companies. Uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, for example, Salary Finance, a company I'm on their advisory board. You know, they they have an ethical, they're an ethical loans company. You can get much cheaper loans through Salary Finance because you pay it back through your salary. And there's obviously a massively important public policy angle there, which uh, makes it attract, an attractive company for me to work with. But I'd love to run something. I would have loved to have been... Um, uh, to have taken the role of chairman of Tech Nation, for example, and help shape its future going forward. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be other public organisations where I get a chance to uh, to work with uh, going forward in the future. Yeah, so I just want to take the chance to want to explain your position on the show from from our perspective because we've reached out. Yeah, to what you. am I doing here? And you've why is this guy on your show? <laughs> exactly. What has he got to say to exactly. the specialist? fintech people who normally listen to this podcast looking for tips and insight into how to run their fintech company yeah and never get any from me but why is the top of his head cut off (laughs) (laughs) um yeah exactly so so this is this is really the the i think the the view that you have to go to to understand how fintech is working so there's many other podcast shows where, you know, it's all about the product, and that's great. And there's one that's all about what's happening in the news in fintech. But certainly, for us to ever do a great job as a search firm in a sector, then we spend a lot of our time going to the tech companies, such as Amazon. We have to talk uh, to people who are legislating. We have to um, go to traditional finance. So, so what I'm really trying to show through this Searching for Mana podcast is that it doesn't mean that every single person that we talk to is the CEO founder of, uh, of a fintech business. We, we're sometimes talking to the data scientist on the ground because um, then that gives us a really full view. So you're in a role for a long period of time where you're shaping a lot of things that affect the tech sector. And so it's incredibly important for, for the audience to, um, to hear it. It's also very interesting to hear what you're doing now because, you know, we, we see people like... Um, Clegg, who's in a prominent position at Facebook, what's 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 he doing there, right? And so if you start understanding technology on a large scale now, it impacts everybody, then of course the politicians are starting to have roles there. And for you to explain to us what you're doing at Salary Finance, which is a, is a business we placed onto the C-suite as a search firm, uh, we don't know each other personally. But, um, you know, if you're coming at it from a recruitment perspective, you don't need to know what's going on on the board. But if you're coming at it from a search perspective, you're trying to understand what salary finance are doing. Then we have to tie that back to if we look at your political career. So I know that you legislated um, around how loans are allowed to be provided to people, right? And this is something that we're talking to a number of people in the credit world within fintech where they're all quite passionate about look we want banking to be trusted we want banking to provide a service of course at some point banks need to make a profit but we've been in a really interesting five-year period where they're just trying to do the right thing and i certainly know that salary finance certainly in my view and i'm sure therefore in yours is getting lending done in a responsible manner and so it'd be quite interested for you to tell us about what you are doing with salary finance and their proposition yeah, so Salary Finance, uh, you know, it's run by a group of people who are very passionate about uh, what they 
where they fit into this whole uh, world. So the kind of legislation you're talking about, which I wasn't personally responsible for, but went through when I was an MP, is about payday loans. And, uh, you know, the loan industry has a terrible uh, reputation, first of all, because of payday loans, which obviously charge extortionate rates of interest, but also normal loans tended to be very high, uh, have relatively high interest rates compared to what people were used to say paying for on their mortgage. And that was because loans are not secured and therefore they are technically higher risk. Uh, but a lot of people have accumulated quite high debt repayments because they take out loans to buy the kind of everyday products from a car to uh, you know audiovisual equipment that most of us would take for granted. And so salary finance is part of a wave of companies that have worked out that you can make loans more secure if you pay them back through your wages. Uh, and if therefore the employer is able to deduct the cost of the loan each month from, from, uh, from your wage packet. And, you, and, and it's really some of the stories that have come out of it are immensely heartwarming because you take people who might have five or six different loans who where those loans are charging pretty high rates of interest and the debt burden of having to repay those loans every month, the interest on those loans every month is becoming pretty crushing. And suddenly, I won't exaggerate it, but suddenly with one bound, they're relatively free because they can consolidate into one loan. The interest rate is much lower and the lender is secure because they know they're going to get a repayment out of, straight out of the wage packet every, every month. Uh, and that's a great thing to be involved in, and it costs the employer nothing. Uh, they just have to integrate it into their uh, into their pay slips. Yeah. Uh, but clearly, salary finance is it's a profit making company. It wants to make a profit, uh, but it's also motivated by what it sees as injustices, perhaps too strong a word, but something wrong in the world of finance. And it therefore gets involved in the whole public policy debate. And I think, for example, that ministers and government often miss a trick. You know, they talk about, you know, every time every time the budget comes around, there's a big debate, you know, is you're going to take a penny off income tax and save people X hundred pounds a year? Well, actually, if, if the government grasped what you can do with some of these financial technology innovations, not just uh, low loans, but, you know, regular mortgage uh, transfers. Uh, and it has obviously made massive progress in terms of your ability to move your current account, change your mortgage, change your phone provider, think of the, about the big kind of costs in a, in a household, the average household budget. But there's much, much more that could be done. You know, the kind of charges, for example, that are levied on pensions uh, still haven't been tackled. Uh, government could, without spending a penny of its own money, as it were, but by simply focusing relentlessly on this and looking at the regulations and championing the good guys in the industry, could save um, your average citizen hundreds of pounds a year without mm -hmm. touching income tax. You know, I was struck uh, salary finance their first week with one particular employer uh, their employees, not all of them, you know, the taking up their loans is obviously not compulsory, but within a week they had saved two million pounds in annual uh, costs to the for the group of employees that took up their loan in the first first week. So you could make a real difference if you had a government that was relentlessly focused on this kind of innovation in the financial marketplace, consumer financial marketplace. Yeah, it's um, something that I passionately agree with. Um, the, the the thing that's come out of the kind of twenty podcasts that um, I've worked through is that if you took that principle um, and applied it to things such as professionals trying to get a mortgage that would get them into an appropriate type of property, it's just really how you look at it, and therefore the restrictions in the regulation. So this is a really yeah, exactly. good example, Ed, of where if politics can work with um, technology, industry, 
without, as yeah. you say, having to tax more, then innovation yeah. can happen that the, the public um, really benefit from. Because if you go to the, the professional um, who's working full-time, you know, doing, doing their best, providing a service, then the, one of the big problems, even through what's been a, you know, 11-year bull market, is that it doesn't true up with materialistic what they expect they should have from past generations. You know, I have a number of uh, examples of people who've gone to the best universities or good ones. Um, they've worked super hard. They're working in companies that we'd recognize the names of. Um, and their pay doesn't relate to their um, situation fairly. You know, they might still be um, renting. That rent might be 50% of what their salary is. Um, you know, they haven't uh, decided to get married because the cost of that would be too much. Um, and so that's what I think fintech has the opportunity to do, is to provide the solutions for that individual to uh, have the experience that would be appropriate to the value that they're providing to, to, to the society. Um, and, and it just takes somebody like you, I feel, um, yes. to be able to have that dialogue across industry and policymakers. So we should totally you, correct. And if we go back um, to your formative years um, when you were growing up, um, I know that you end up at Oxford University studying history. Um, but if we could actually go back before then and try and understand maybe some of the the values that. Um, you had installed in you some of the uh, influences, uh, be that from parents or um, from schools or whatever it might be. What what do you think um, growing up was stand out about your experience as you remember it? So in many respects, I had a completely conventional upbringing. I was a middle class kid growing up in London, uh, but uh, you know never financially uh under pressure in any way not particularly rich but certainly never under any never any concerns about where the next meal was coming from and so on i uh, went to a private school uh st paul's a very good school and therefore going to oxford was no great achievement uh considering my background i guess my formative influences were my parents overwhelmingly my parents so my father was uh, an economist, uh, an academic uh, who taught at university and wrote a lot of books about economics. Uh, but the key thing to understand there is that he he was an advisor to many Labour governments and, in fact, was put into the House of Lords by Harold Wilson, uh, the Labour Prime Minister in the mid-1970s. But he then changed sides and went over to the Conservatives when Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister at the end of the 1970s. So he, uh, I obviously grew up in a house where politics was immensely important and there were political figures coming to the house all the time. Plus my dad made this massive change from leaving the party he had supported all his life, the Labour Party, to joining the Conservative Party. And you can imagine when he joined the Conservative Party, I was 11. Uh, you know, had a major influence on my political outlook, and I became a very strong supporter of Margaret Thatcher as a teenager. Sounds and probably was extremely nauseating to think of some teenage Thatcherite, but there you go. Uh, but I think really what I took from my dad was, um, you know, politics was just in the living room and the and the dining room every day. Uh, my mum. Uh, influenced me in a different way. So she was an art critic. She wrote about the arts. So I grew up going to exhibitions, going to the theatre, going to the opera from a pretty young age. And I therefore had a kind of affinity and love of culture that I took into politics. So I was one of the few people to actually ask a leader of a party if I could actually be the culture spokesman. That's weirdly how I came to the technology brief. It's quite complicated, but I started having the culture brief looking after museums and galleries 
Uh, but the other thing about my mum is she's American and she's Jewish. I was brought up as a Christian, but she's Jewish. And so her father uh, grew up in poverty in New York, uh, wasn't allowed, was the first in his family to go to university, having grown up in New York speaking Yiddish in a room with eight brothers and sisters. Uh, couldn't join any legitimate law firm in New York because he was Jewish in the 1920s, so set up on his own. Uh, and I don't want to kind of overdo it, but I think there's an element that I've taken from my mum being American and Jewish of being a slight outsider. I mean, I'm obviously, you only have to look at me and listen to me speak to know that I'm the consummate insider and I've had a very easy path in life in terms of my education, in terms of becoming an MP and so on. Uh, but I do like to think that I have a sort of element of being on the outside looking in to a certain extent. I'm not quite as 100% British establishment as I appear. So they've been obviously the major influences uh, on my life. My father also died when I was 16. So that was obviously uh, very traumatic for me. And uh, I do wonder, <clears throat> given how influential both he and my mother have been on me, uh, whether I would have been a different person if he had, if I'd grown into adulthood. Uh, I wonder sometimes if I went into politics partly to sort of recreate, oh, this sounds very odd and probably unhelpful and not the inspiring message people want to hear from politicians, but I wonder if to a certain extent, you know, I, I went into politics to sort of uh, reconnect with my dead father. There's an element of that, I think. So I think all those factors are influential on my upbringing. Yeah, no, look, that's why um, it's interesting to hear uh, people's background because it certainly influences where their career um, went at different um, time frames and... Um, you know, I think if you grew up with politics, um, you know, and uh, you thought your father was a real, as I'm sure he was, role model, then um, you gravitating towards it after he's he's passed makes um, make makes some sense. Um, but what I um, take from the background um, pre Oxford is that possibly what you what you what you had was you had uh, exposure to many different things and so that might have allowed you to have more empathy than a lot of people assume politicians have who've been down the exact conveyor belt of although you did go to a great school St Paul's is brilliant obviously then you went to Oxford you know you had impressive parents because you saw art, art and culture because your mum's um, background had some struggle in it perhaps you have more of a ability to look at situation with an empathy to it. And if we look at your legacy in, in politics, um, you know, it seems like you didn't try and grandstand too much from what I can see yet. And there wasn't too much like, you know, absolute, I must get into that top role from what I can read and research. Um, that's, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know, but it feels like maybe that carried through your whole career and, and, I think that that's that's really that's really nice to see because I'm always personally as a headhunter striving for balance because uh, it's my role as you know we are by the nature of what we do trying to just understand situations and try and understand people and put them together so culture blends creatively and uh, it feels like you've got a really um, a real way of of seeing things as well like that um, which which. Um, which, which is great. But if we go then through Oxford, um, what would be interesting um, to me, and then we can finish on this kind of first segment, is um, of course there was an education you had there in history, but, but it seems like that generation uh, and, and many certainly formed relationships that then their careers um, came, kept on like cross-pollinating. You had a real um, period there at Oxford where loads of prominent people have come to power, right? As ever. And you're involved in it. Um, what, 
if you go back to that that period, like was was that was that obvious? Could you see that you have a, a bunch of people who were going to be the leaders of the country moving forward? Um, or actually, um, you know, is it, it, it just complete coincidence? This is a really interesting, I suppose, for our audience. Yeah, I think it's a very perceptive uh, question you're asking, because I think uh, certainly with hindsight, I can absolutely, it's completely crystal clear. And in some ways, slightly revolting, I guess, in some ways, uh, Oxford being the home of, the breeding ground of the establishment. It's revolting in some ways and it's attractive in other ways because Oxford is also weirdly a sort of great leveller. Someone like me went to Oxford, it was kind of, it would be more of a surprise if I hadn't gone to Oxbridge given my education. But then you had people like Michael Gove from comparatively modest background. Again, I don't think Michael would, um, bang on and say he had some kind of really tough upbringing and I think he went to an independent school but you know his parents had to work to to, to afford it uh, but you have people from lots of different backgrounds who Oxford kind of leveled out and people found their niche so obviously the Oxford Union uh, bred a lot of people who I now know in the world of politics like Michael Gove himself, but Jeremy Quinn, weirdly Simon Stevens running the NHS at the moment. Uh, the world of student journalism bred people who are now very prominent in the media. And uh, I think the surprising bit, the people I didn't expect to be in my sort of, in this kind of village, if you like, of government, there are at least two, my tutorial partner is now the second most important civil servant in the country. He's just uh, been made permanent secretary at the cabinet office. And another friend of mine is a permanent secretary, a contemporary of mine from college is permanent secretary at the home office. Another contemporary of mine is ambassador at the Netherlands. So that whole official uh, world, if you like, the, the career civil servant and career diplomat, uh, turns out there are a lot of people I was at Oxford with who were there. So did I know at the time? No, I don't think you do realise at the time. I think, but I, I have to say, I think you realise quite quickly afterwards. You know, I went to work for the Tory party straight after university. Yeah. Michael Gove went to work for, uh, I can't remember, uh, I think eventually the BBC. So really in your early 20s, you're beginning to to see, you know, make jokes, it might be inappropriate to say it, but make jokes about, you know, who might be, end up prime minister or who might end up as editor of the Times. And, uh, but you also see, again, I think with hindsight, how, how insular to a certain extent those worlds are. There's a world of politics and media that interacts. There's a world, as I say, of kind of diplomacy and officialdom that interacts. There's a world of the city, which I never interacted with at all, you know, so all the People I know from university who are now at the top of big banks, you know, I have no idea what they did for the last 30 years. Uh, there's a world of law, which to a certain extent we interacted with. I was briefly a barrister, but uh, so everyone went pretty much into their silos uh, pretty quickly. And um, it's interesting and a bit amusing to look back and think, you know, I've known a lot of these people for 30 years. Yeah. And Ed. When you were coming out of university, having to think through, you know, um, okay, me and my mates have just kind of um, had a bit of fun with who's gonna who's gonna be the PM or <laughs> you know the top editor of a of a publication. Yeah. There's a different there's different paths for me. I can go straight into party politics, or I can go into uh, become a barrister. I could go into an investment bank. Um, I could become a lawyer, etc., uh, etc., et an accountant. Then you ended up going and joining the party but also becoming a barrister what was the thinking there was it strategic did you know at that point um, as you say partly because you wanted to uh, have a reconnection potentially with your father okay this path is the best path and then it's two two sections to the question in hindsight does that feel like that was the thing that allowed you to be so successful 
so that's a very perceptive question as well. So, because uh, I've reflected on it uh, a lot. Uh, I went to the Tory, I went to work for the Tory party by accident to a certain extent. I had actually weirdly, I'm sorry to the image I must be projecting, but I'd weirdly worked for them in my gap year before going to university. Uh, but somebody said, you know, they were looking, it's this thing called the Conservative Research Department, which was, they did all the political research for government ministers. So civil servants are allowed to, you know, obviously do all the work on your policy. But if you wanted to attack the the opposition, uh, you had to use people in your in the political party. And uh, somebody said, I was all set to go to law school. And somebody said, actually, there's a job going at Conservative Central Office, as it was called then. And I thought, yeah, I'll go for it. It'd be a bit like doing a kind of MPhil for two years, you know, in politics. It'd be fun. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. And uh, I don't know whether it's the same now, but I can't, you know, it was like, uh, you know, to me, politicians were rock and roll stars. <laughs> I loved, still do love politics. So at the age of 21, when you're writing speeches for Ken Clark, you know, it's pretty intoxicating. It's very, very exciting. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. And then I made a terrible mistake, which is uh, interesting for your headhunting approach. I decided, and you're quite right, as a strategy, that I would go back to my original plan to become a barrister. Obviously, I enjoyed public speaking and all of that. Uh, and so I having been in the absolute center of things as a 21-year-old and loving every minute, I went back to college, two years studying, another year of training as an apprentice, a pupil. So three years of my life, while all my mates were still enjoying themselves in politics and the Tories had unexpectedly won the election. And uh, I was utterly, utterly miserable. And I think it affected my ability to be successful as a barrister because I was constantly looking over my shoulder at politics. Uh, and I had gone to be a barrister as a strategy. I'd gone to be a barrister because uh, I ultimately wanted to be an MP. I made a terrible mistake to uh, go and pursue my career as a barrister when my first love was politics and um, missed out on five or six years when the Tories were in power. And I only went back to politics just as the Tories were about to lose to a landslide election, I finally left the bar and went to join a public affairs company a year before the Tories went down to the biggest election loss for, you know, 150 years. Uh, and it was a great lesson in life to me, which is you you have to fundamentally have to follow your passion and uh, you shouldn't do things for what you perceive to be the right reasons. You should do them for uh, for whatever rocks your boat. So, uh, yeah, I, I made a huge mistake going to the bar and I should have stuck with politics. Although I would, maybe I would be sitting here now thinking if only I had <clears throat> had a proper career, maybe I had to get the bar out of my system, but certainly, you know, I, once I went to become an MP, I found my groove and uh, thoroughly enjoyed my 14 years as an MP. I know that it would have changed over the, the time frame, the different uh, roles that you had. Um, but if, if we go to uh, uh, a kind of place in time when you were an MP and doing the job that you were truly passionate about, what, um, what, was the, what were some of the things that you loved about it if we think about you on a given day? Well, first of all, the bit I enjoyed a lot, which I wasn't expecting to, because obviously I'm a career politician, uh, was looking after my constituency. So you find out very quickly the difference you can make as an MP to individual people who, you know, the people who contact you when you're an MP tend to be people who have reached the end of the line. They, they have nowhere else to go. I mean, I did get the odd person asking me to, appeal their parking ticket and I never lost a parking ticket appeal while I was an MP but generally speaking you get people who are having their hospital operation cancelled can't get proper housing finding it difficult to access welfare benefits 
and uh, you can make a real difference to their lives, provided you're prepared to react quickly and effectively and follow up. So I found that enormously satisfying. Uh, and then I think the other thing I always say about being an MP <clears throat> is, uh, you know, it's like having an, a, an, an access all areas backstage pass because whatever issue you are interested in, you have a platform in the House of Commons if you want to raise an issue and say, I think the world should be like this and I'm going to campaign for it. People listen to you because you've got MP after your name. Uh, but also if you say, I want to talk to Joe Bloggs or Helen Smith about this issue, this famous person doing this or this famous person doing that, uh, they will tend to <clears throat> agree to meet you because they know that through you as an MP, even if you're a backbencher, <clears throat> you can potentially bring about change. So yeah. it's a very, very satisfying uh, job to do. Thinking, thinking it through and having thought it through, um, and this is often the case when you think through someone who's at the top of a, a given profession, you always wonder how do they stay on top of all the different tasks they need to do to be successful at the job overall. And um, it strikes me when you talk through, you know, the reality of some of the responsibilities that you have as an MP for your constituents, also looking at the strategy that you want to be pushing uh, generally for the party, for the country. I just wonder, what does that day look like, Ed? So you, you must have to be consuming and reading an awful lot of uh, content. You must have to be having meetings throughout the day so you're on top of strategy. You must then on the most um, basic level have to be corresponding with one of your constituents about that parking ticket or, or something medical or whatever it might be. It must be full on. Like, can, can you talk us through what a day looks like? Yeah, so I think um, you've got to, uh, <clears throat> obviously not all MPs are perfect and I'm not claiming for a minute that I was perfect, but if I think about how, the, how to do the job, first of all, obviously you need a good team and you need a good team around you with uh, clear responsibilities for what you want to achieve as an MP. And <clears throat> broadly speaking, you have three jobs which you can compartmentalise, which involve effectively three three job descriptions it might be more than three people but one is plain and simple casework and that is if your constituent writes to you and says i'm having trouble with x can you help me uh you get on it and you solve it and often you're just a post bag so you might say this person needs better housing i'll contact the local council uh but i think the lesson you learn there is uh speed uh people when you consider our day-to-day -day reaction uh, interaction with bureaucracy of any kind, both private and public, people really appreciate a personal response and a quick response. So I used to reply to every single constituent personally, but I would write one sentence saying, I will sort this out. You know, I didn't write five paragraphs. I will sort this out and then I would pass it on to my caseworker and we would sort it out. Uh, and then the second job is uh, you need someone to help you with your the issues that cross the whole of the constituency. So it might be housing development in my case or better road infrastructure or whatever. And that's, that covers the whole constituency. So you have somebody who you work with on that and you think through strategies about how to raise that issue and who to contact, which ministers to contact to make a difference. And then the third issue is, you know, what, what are the national issues that interest you, in my case, culture and technology, that you want to use Parliament as a platform to campaign on? So those are the ways you keep abreast. But I think... So when, so when, uh, you, talked, when you talked earlier... Like, like it, well... Yeah, When you talked earlier about, um, actually, you wanted to leave politics to be involved in politics more, um, funnily enough, then... What you're talking about is you wanted to focus more time on that third category that you're you're talking about. You wanted to be yeah. involved. Or, yes, right. Okay, right. That's 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 useful for me to understand. So you'd come to a 15 year or so tenure um, where you'd been looking after your constituency, um, really enjoying it, doing great work. But because that keeps you so busy, it's um, how you just explained it. 70 percent of the the, the the work that you're doing on a day or a weekly basis, you, you wanted to hand that over to somebody and then focus on this third element, which is the broader 
strategy. And specifically now, that brings us to where you are now, which is looking at involved in um, the uh, the cultural media technology uh, in our country and trying to have some influence. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. and in terms of um, what you're involved in beyond the companies that you're working with, you're, um, you're on the board of um, some of the institutes focused on culture. Yeah. And, so uh, I, mean, I have a range of, I have a, what is euphemistically called a portfolio career. And so I, I wanted to basically, when I stopped being a minister, which is really when I feel that my kind of political career ended, although we had the hangover of Brexit and the whole battle over Brexit, but uh, I wanted to recreate my ministerial career uh, in the private sector, if that doesn't sound too weird. Uh, so I thought, you know, what are the things that I'm most interested in? They are cultural, culture and cultural policy, technology and technology policy. And so I work for a bank, uh, an M&A advisory firm, does a lot of deals in technology and media called Lion Tree. <clears throat> That's enabled me to build relationships with, particularly with UK tech companies that are emerging, who the bank might be able to advise as they grow, both in terms of fundraising or acquisition. Uh, and I don't have to go to those companies and say, oh, I used to be the minister. I can now say, no, I represent Lion Tree. So that's fantastic. Uh, I get, uh, I still have some input into telecoms and technology policy through my work with FTI, which is a corporate uh, communications consultancy. And I work with a not-for-profit called Common Sense, which uh, campaigns for kids' safety on the internet. So again, quite policy focused. And then I work with a range of different startups. Again, digital theater combines culture and technology, putting uh, theater material online, salary finance we've talked about, NewsGuard, which uh, helps uh, spot fake news websites. So again, policy and commercial combined. Uh, so a range of different companies that, that kind of touch those sweet spots. And I'm on the board of cultural organizations like the National Youth Theatre. So it's a pretty full and busy life, although what's missing in the middle of it is a sort of um, uh, anchor tenant, if you like. That, so, uh, so if you... Where so I can if, really... So if you now thought about um, what's next for you over the next few, five, 10 years, the, the portfolio role you just described, um, you feel like that has been the right move. You, you don't have an itching to go back into frontline politics. Yeah, I do have an itching to go uh, back into frontline politics. And I would love to, you know, I don't think I could sustain, I don't know if I would sustain a portfolio career for the next 15 years. Uh, it's been a wonderful way for me to transition out of politics, uh, as it were, in, in terms of being in parliament, but I would love to run a public policy facing organization uh, in, in the tech or culture space. Uh, people might interpret that as running a museum. I'm not sure I could run a museum, uh, but certainly I would look at any kind of interesting uh, government quangos that uh, fitted within that kind of DCMS family uh, as either a chairman or a chief executive of one of those would be something I'd probably enjoy a great deal. Yeah. And, and then just, just, um, just lastly, um, I think it's prudent for us to, you know, discuss um, the coronavirus. Um, and I'd really be interested in your view on um, what the Chancellor has put in place, which is um, huge amounts of money to protect SMEs in the country. But um, there is, certainly from my view, four weeks into everybody moving remotely, everybody's revenues falling off of a cliff, um, challenges to access that. So I know that there's a movement um, with a number of fintech businesses who have joined together and have a view of this because their customer base are SMEs if they lend to them, um, where they can see that there's real problems in those, in those businesses who, who are the lifeblood of our um, tech sector. Um, so we're trying to put that message out. I don't know if you're um, 
you're aware of this particular fintech campaign, but I'll certainly share a link underneath this podcast episode so you can or other people can see it. But on that on that exact point, um, you know, again, as somebody who has has empathy, it seems like Rishi has done a good job. Um, he's put a large package to support SMEs. There's initiatives like furloughing staff um, that are brilliant but are complex to work through. So we're, we're living in an incredibly challenging time. And I think the sentiment of the public and a business owner is, seems like all the right intentions are there, but there's still lots of people going out of business. There's going to be a recession or a depression that we're going to have to live through in the short term. Um, I just wanted to finish with giving you a chance to, to air your views on, on that subject right now. So I think, uh, obviously, uh, I'm full of praise for what Rishi Sunak has done in terms of uh, turning on the fire hose, if you like. And it is, again, a testament to how quickly this terrible crisis has developed, that we went from a budget on March the 11th, I think, talking about 8 billion quid to support uh, the economy through coronavirus to a 330 billion stimulus package uh, announced, uh, I think, two weeks later. So, uh, but people obviously uh, are extraordinarily grateful for what they see as quick and comprehensive action from a chancellor who gives the impression, and I'm sure is, is true, uh, in control. So the policy is fine. What you have and what you're describing are the classic symptoms of Whitehall, which is it's all very well for a minister to announce a policy. It's how it actually is implemented on the ground. And I had you know, some experience of that with uh, being responsible for, for the rollout of broadband. And I found at the, at the end of the day, I had to have, you know, we weren't in a crisis situation, but I had to have weekly meetings uh, with the broadband providers and the civil servants to keep making progress. And you had to keep firefighting the most irritating kind of bureaucratic obstacles around the country. Yeah. Uh, and I think Rishi is, from what I understand, you know, reading the press, is, is reacting to the problems that have arisen in the implementation of this policy. It apparently, some people blame the commercial lending banks for demanding too high a price for the loans. Some people blame the British Business Bank for being too bureaucratic. Now, in my experience of working, as you can imagine, in my position, lots of companies come to me asking for advice, saying, we've got this brilliant service we'd love to provide to the government. Uh, it's obviously extraordinarily difficult to penetrate uh, to, through to decision makers in the Treasury, because at the end of the day, ultimately, the decision maker is Rishi, uh, and maybe one or two others, and they are completely inundated. Uh, with individuals saying, either ringing up on behalf of a mate, because they happen to know the Chancellor, so they tell their mate, oh, I'll just ring the Chancellor and get this sorted, through uh, to other big problems being brought to them, you know, I don't know, by the CBI or the Institute of Directors. Uh, so trying to kind of prioritise that and, and get through is very difficult. And trying to make this a project of this size announced so quickly work on the ground is immensely complicated. But certainly, uh, I would like to think if I was a Treasury Minister, I would find the time to engage with the fintech community because by definition, we talked about this in the opening of the podcast, a lot of change has happened very, very quickly. The kind of technology change in public services that might have taken 10 years has taken 10 days. And it would seem to me fairly obvious that certainly the experienced and larger scale fintech companies with the resources and the uh, network, if you like, uh, scale to distribute financial support could be paid in aid. But you've always got to be aware that ministers are pretty overwhelmed and they have to make very quick decisions and they will tend to fall back on the tried and trusted providers. It's, it's one thing to implement technology change very quickly in 10 days. It's quite another to onboard companies with whom you have no prior history to deliver a valuable government service. And they've always got to be mindful, obviously, of, um, uh, of uh, you know, probity, ensuring that the, these funds are not being misused in any way. So it's an extremely complex situation. It's very, very hard to make your voice heard. Everyone thinks they've got an answer, but if only the government would give them five minutes, they would solve their problems. 
it's a it's a really 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 complex navigation and going back to kind of how i did my job as an mp at the end of the day i suspect rishi sunak can only keep himself sane by focusing on three or four things that he's going to make sure happen and happen properly yeah that's right and um I, I I understand the the challenges, and I think the fintech community um, feels like it has a solution because the technology is there to distribute these loans to businesses that look like they had very good fundamentals, and we want to protect through the next two, three, four, five months. Um, so um, I will share that link uh, because uh, I think that this is exactly like as we talked at the beginning of the podcast, where. The, you've got to look at the silver linings whilst, of course, overall, um, it is a tragic time. But if we could, you know, use this um, as an opportunity to change the way that the correct SMEs are funded um, in preference to having to go to the incumbent banks where then the SME business, uh, the individual has to secure that debt on their own property. Um, exactly. Uh, which 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 is some people will and um, then there's still a loan to pay off and the business to be successful um, and then there are other hurdles you need we need to try and amplify that message um especially yeah and some and of those changes some of those changes have been made by rishi already so as you know there was a huge outcry about some of the terms the commercial banks were imposing yeah, yeah. and and they quickly they quickly cut through those but that's a very good example yeah ed thank you so much for your time um, absolutely fascinating I've really career. I've, career. I've really enjoyed it. Um, we'll we'll uh, get back to you on whether we cut out some of the um, the background scenery um, <laughs> throughout the podcast. I mean, it could get us a much bigger audience. So we'll we'll, we'll talk about this after the show. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers, Ed. Thank you.